Life Management Science Labs would like to acknowledge that we live and produce this podcast on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people. We'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands of our listeners and our international colleagues. We'd like to pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Hey everyone and welcome to Raising Parents, the Parenting Science Insights podcast produced by LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. We are champions of life management science, providing structured insights informed by science and inspired by practice on key aspects of conscious living. Each week, we bring you scientific and practical insights on each element with the expert knowledge of professionals in the field. I'm your host, Dina Sargent. Let's get started. Hey guys, and welcome back to another episode. Now, there's a saying that states that a parent is a child's first teacher. Children learn so much from their parents, and that's exactly what we're going to be looking about a little bit deeper in today, especially talking about the interaction between a parent and a child. To help me on this topic is a psychologist with a passion for early intervention and special education, Ulyssia Err. Thank you so much for joining me today, Ulyssia. Thank you. Now, as a psychologist, what is your role in encouraging parents to build up their relationship with their child? I guess I have to um, really define um, what parenting is. Um, so <laughs> um, the definition and experience of parenting can vary um, from person to person. Um, so my role uh, in helping parents would actually be um, dependent on many cultural, societal, personal and individual factors. So it can be anything from, um, you know, personal journey that they may have. They may have questions or they may have some confusion about um, positive behavior support, or they may be asking me questions about their responsibilities and things like their relationships in uh, raising and nurturing their children. Mm -hmm. And what also has been the most frustration parents and possibly children face when trying to pursue that interaction? I think the most... um, frustrating experience or maybe um, obstacle that parents may face Mm. would be the lack of time. I guess because we are in a very busy society, uh, it's very tough for parents to actually prioritize um, the relationship with their children, given that they have to put uh, food on the table, they have to ensure that uh, career-wise they are doing well as well. Mm -hmm. And before we get Hang on, let me start that part again. Now, that's a great introduction into our topic today. Before we discuss it even further, I would love to get to know your recommendations and some of your passions as well by playing our channel's favorite icebreaker. Now, to start off with, what is the most recent book that you have read? Um, I love books by Ryan Holiday. So I think the most recent book I've read is The Obstacle is the Way. Um, I like that it, you know, brought about uh, themes like challenges and adversity. Yeah, so it was very applicable uh, in in my current life. Mm -hmm. And what is a movie that you would recommend to our viewers today? I guess along the same theme, um, I really like Overcoming Challenges, so it's Top Gun Maverick. Uh, yeah, so um, I think last year it was uh, my favorite movie of the year. Even till now, it beats 
a Barbie for me <laughs> because it really is about overcoming personal demons and being there, you know, for I think the team members. So I, I really like that his character, uh, you know, initially grappled with personal challenges. Uh, and along the way itself, you know, as a reminder that all individuals can overcome our past and find redemption through uh, perseverance and self-improvement. Yeah, I, I really agree. I think Top Gun Maverick, I think, also adds that level of as you get older, there's still that ability to learn from your mistakes. Yes, and I, I really love the fact that, you know, from I, I just watched um the first Top Gun movie on Sunday. So I really liked that it was, you know, like uh, him continuing his passion for the past 30 years. So it's very similar to me. I guess being an educational psychologist would be something of a lifelong journey. Yeah, for me throughout my entire life. Okay, wow. That's that's so good to hear. Now, could you name a podcast that really, that somehow really stands out to you? Um, I listen to podcasts daily. Um mm-hmm. Two of my favorites uh, on YouTube um, and on Spotify is uh, Stephen Barlett's The Diary of a CEO and On Purpose with Jay Shetty. Okay. What what about the two of them really stand out to you in terms of, um, you know, fighting for adversary and the way that it stands out to you? I guess it's really because um, I've been working for 13 years and um, I'm from Singapore. So being in Singapore, uh, we are kind of expected by societal standards to be working all the time. Uh, it mm-hmm. is a very competitive society. So um, this podcast helps me to kind of ground myself, you know, to what is actually more meaningful. That means my work is meaningful. However, I need to actually look at, you know, other areas of my life, right? And it's not just work su- success that I'm looking out for, but also things like my relationships with my peers, my family, and my, with my husband as well. Mm-hmm. Now, do you have a person that you look up to? Yes, definitely. So I actually look up to Elon Musk uh, for his audacious goals and ambitious vision. Right. But that being said, um, it's the career aspect of him that I admire. So I hope my marital relationship will be everlasting. <laughs> well, let, let's hope so. And now during your academic pursuits, what's been one course that has really stuck to you? Um, there hasn't been just one course or one module per se. I just completed my second master's. It's a Master's in Science in Transition Planning for um, Adults with Disabilities. So it was very meaningful because uh, it really helps me see how I could move uh, individuals with disabilities from one stage to the other uh, with a focus mm-hmm. of on achieving or helping them to achieve greater independence, self-sufficiency and a meaningful life. Mm-hmm. And now talking a lot about parenting and today's focus is all around parenting. Parenting opens up so many questions and looking deeper into the definition of parenting. And I know that we had this a little bit before we had a little bit of your definition. What do you think the whole idea of being a parent is in today's society? I think it really depends from person to person. So um, like I mentioned previously, parenting is influenced by cultural, societal, 
personal and individual factors. So, mm-hmm. um, however, while each person's parenting may differ, it's their own personal journey, which could be characterized by their different responsibilities, actions and relationships in raising and nurturing their children, where they have to provide for a child's physiological, emotional, social and intellectual intellectual needs and development from infancy to adulthood. So I think um, parenting is a very dynamic process which involves this complex interplay of care, support, guidance and discipline. Mm -hmm. And a message to a lot of expectant parents coming up to be, what do you think that they would need to be aware of in their transition to parenthood? Um, This sounds a bit bleak, but I think... I just want to share. So according to Dr. John Gottman, who is uh, a very well-known family therapist, so Mm -hmm. while becoming a parent can be wonderful and a fulfilling experience, parenting actually takes a toll on our adult relationships. So research by Dr. John Gottman, and I think he has a Bringing Baby Home program, shows that for 67% of new parents, this transition to parenthood causes the decreased happiness and relationship satisfaction. Mm -hmm. And looking through the scope of a parent's first interaction with an infant, and what do you think is the most common thing that you hear parents say after they first become parents? I think the first common thing that I hear for parents who have just, you know, become parents is um, that they have They are in a lot of stress, they don't know what to do, and there is not enough time uh, to, you know, read up or find out what they can do to help their child. So most of my children, uh, most of my uh, peers who have children um, have been, you Mm -hmm. know, saying that to me. And similarly, I guess because I worked with many children who are special needs and many children who are actually neurotypicals, the families are also saying the same thing. There's not enough time. Society is too stressful for them. Mm -hmm. Now, to set the stage a little bit more, could you explain what positive parent-child interaction entails and also why it's critical in a child's development? Okay, so um, positive parent-child interaction refers to a good enough parent-child relationship that involves fostering a warm and nurturing environment where children feel loved, they feel valued and supported. So through this encouragement, uh, quality time, constructive feedback, parents can then promote their child's emotional well-being, self-esteem and healthy development, ultimately building this strong and trusting parent-child relationship that benefits both parents and children. Right. So um, I guess it's a very critical topic in child development um, because it serves as a model for healthy relationships, and values mm-hmm. contributing to the child's overall growth, their self-esteem, their resilience, which then shape their capacity to navigate life's challenges and thrive uh, as they grow older as well-adjusted adults. Mm-hmm. And when we talk about positive conversations as well, there's some advice that not only you look at the vocabulary, but also look at the tone that the vocabulary sort of entails. How do we sort of find out what our tone is when we become a parent and what how important the tone is in a child's development? Um, I think in terms of the 
tone, that's the parent-child communication. So I think you are spot on. Uh, it refers to the vocabulary and the exchange of information and ideas uh, between parents and children. So this mm. emphasizes the transfer of knowledge and guidance. Um, I guess this is uh, slightly different for uh, parent-child interactions because um, communication is more uh, of a concept that is subsumed under interaction. Uh, basically, mm-hmm. for um, parent-child interaction, uh, I think not only the tone is important, right, the communication, but also it has like a broader range of activities and emotional exchanges uh, between parents and children, such as physical closeness, shared experiences, and bonding. So it's not, it's, it involves not only talking, right, but also uh, parents listening, playing, comforting, nurturing their children, which then creates this uh, deeper and holistic connection that goes beyond communication. Okay, so when we're talking about interaction, it's not just um, verbal interaction. It could be physical interaction. It could be um, sort of like love languages, like quality time and just being there for a child. Okay, so what are some of the key elements that are really characterize what positive parent-child interaction is? I think in terms of positive parent-child um, interaction, so this refers to that environment that mm. needs to be there. Um, mm-hmm. So first, I think your family environment has to be warm and nurturing, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, so that's one. And I think second thing would be quality time. Uh, parents would have to, you know, despite their busy schedules, they would have to actually set aside enough or sufficient time um, so, so that Sufficient or enough time, it's something that's different for all families and for all children. So the parents will have to probably, you know, um, experiment or try that out. What does enough quality time means to their child? And I think with uh, the third approach, it would be actually that constructive feedback uh, to actually promote their child's well-being. So, you know, if let's say their child is trying to, you know, play with them or get them to, you know, comment on, Anything with regards to academic work, um, it should be more constructive. It can be firm, uh, but it has to be uh, nurturing at the same time. Mm-hmm. So when it comes to praising a child and sort of giving that positive reinforcement, how do you have that praising reinforcement without sort of coming off as condescending or praising them over too much to the point where they develop that need for validation through praise. Okay, so in um, psychology, we are looking at the approach of operant conditioning. So that comes mm-hmm. with um, behaviorist approach, right? So what we tell parents is that we use uh, behavior-specific praises. So we would actually praise the child for you know the specific effort that's being done instead of just telling them, uh, excellent, good job. So, of course, in terms of the ratio of praise, um, as a parent, we need to be very cognizant, right? Is this something that my child uh, is able to do actually without praise? So if they can do it independently, right, maybe you might want to praise uh, in the first instance or you see the effort and you praise the effort for it, but it should actually taper down 
as they go mm-hmm. along. If not, as they grow older, they would seek external validation for every single small thing that they are doing. So when it comes to that positive interaction that we were speaking to, speaking about a little bit earlier, how does that contribute to that development that the child would need? Okay, so I think um, there has been at least um, 50 years of research um, mm-hmm. in psychology and in child development. So for parent-child interactions, it has a very lasting influence on a child's emotional well-being, social skills, cognitive abilities, their overall life development and trajectory. Um, so positive interactions in childhood has been shown to nurture emotional security, resilience, healthy relationships, while negative parent-child relationships can result in challenges that persist uh, right into adulthood. So this interaction shapes um, the child's self-esteem, decision-making, capacity for forming meaningful connections, and this ultimately influences their mental health, success in adult relationships, and overall life satisfaction. Okay. So I think it's similar to what we were talking about, the question I asked a little bit earlier when it came to that that need for approval. And how do you let, I think especially when it comes to a teenager, for example, when it comes to that development as a growing up to being an adult, how do you have that, build that underlying trust between the parent and the child? I would say most of um, the teenage students that I have, um, Mm -hmm. what I've realized is that the parents have done the due diligence when they were younger in spending quality time with them. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, so that being said, um, it's important, I think, for parents to start as young as possible. I think that's why there's early intervention, uh, to start as young as, as possible to actually spend um, that quality time and uh, create that environment for, for their children in that sense. Yeah. So for those parents who may have um, some issues um, parenting their teenagers, uh, what we tell them is to actually be patient, uh, to give their you know adolescents some space to you know um, get back to them on certain things, right? And yeah. do not over control them. Um, because teenagers require uh, a sense of autonomy as they grow older, they are trying to find out about you know their I- identity. They might have you know some issues, uh, you know with school. Um, so this is important for the parents to give just give them enough space for the time being and let them know that you know if there's anything they can always um, approach their parents again. Mm-hmm. And. Now we're going to move on to talking about parenting styles. And I hear this so often on the show when we talk about parenting styles. How do the different ways of parenting affect the quality of a parent and child interaction? Okay, so um, we have, I think, four different parenting styles uh, in research so far. So there's the authoritative, authoritarian, permissive and neglectful Um, and actually uh, I think the research has shown that these four styles actually profoundly impact the quality of parent-child interaction so let me just break down the different styles first so for authoritative parenting these are characterized by warm and clear boundaries 
that often leads to positive, respectful, and supportive interactions. So the second type of parenting, authoritarian parenting, results in tense and less nurturing interactions. Um, this is very much due to strict rules and lack of warmth. Um, the third parenting would be permissive parenting. It, this leads to indulgence and overly lenient interactions, which then undermine the discipline and structure in children. So lastly, neglectful parenting often results in insufficient guidance and emotional detachment, which leads to minimal and unresponsive interactions. So each of these four styles uh, shapes the dynamics of parent-child interactions, which um, influences their development, behavior, and long-term outcomes. Um, in summary, I think the most positive parenting style or rather the preferred parenting style that leads to uh, a positive quality of parent-child interactions are those that are authoritative. So these are the ones that has um, firm but warm, clear boundaries. Mm -hmm. So especially when it comes to, I mean, minus the authoritative parenting style, but the second one, I think, what would, can you remind me what the second parenting style is again? Okay, it was authoritarian. So this is yeah. a very strict parents. There's yeah. no warmth. Um, they just they're just telling their child or their children what to do uh, at certain times, and they are hell bent on um their children meeting these rules and deadlines. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to that parent-child interaction, is it harder for that parenting style to sort of give up control a little bit more in terms of a child's autonomy or learning from their own mistakes? Yes, I I grew up in um authoritarian parenting household and it's really difficult for my own mother to actually give up uh, the full control. So even though I'm now an adult, as you can see, she is still very much in control. Uh, it's a little bit less strict uh, as I grow older, but mm. I guess it's also because um, her upbringing um, is also authoritarian. So uh, parenting styles actually transpires through generations. Yeah, no, it's interesting because I was going to say the same thing about my the way that my mother was parenting throughout my childhood and sort of relating to that a bit more. And I remember a lot when I was growing up, there was that need of um, only mom could cook. So I never learned to cook on my own until I was about in my early 20s when I needed to learn to cook. So throughout the teenage years, it was, I remember my mom always being there and sort of guiding constantly. If I'm doing something wrong, she would say that I'm doing something wrong. Um, so as well as well as I did learn to cook, it was never on my own. So just relating that a lot back to um the authoritarian parenting style, it's, it's a very similar thing to when we talk about the interaction and the, the child, the development of a child throughout that, throughout that parenting style specifically. Yes. Um, I guess, uh, it's good that you have learned how to cook because I have not. <laughs> On Sunday, I just <laughs> asked my mom, my mom is a great cook. Um, however, <laughs> I guess, yes, uh, for whatever reason, that she has, she felt that, you know, since she has spent a lot of time uh, bringing me up as, as the, 
she counts she counts me as as quite a successful uh child in her opinion yeah. uh she she guessed that uh or she actually told me then i shouldn't cook because she said being a housewife is absolutely tough so because of that she refused to you know teach me any of her recipes which it's it's a pity because she cooks really well so i guess that's why growing up i I don't know how to cook and um sometimes I have to rely on my husband to cook simple dishes. Yeah. Yeah, no, see that's very interesting because I've like going I have a lot of my friends who are sort of in the similar boat that they didn't learn to cook until they're in their mid 20s. But it's simple things that they can only cook because nothing was as ever good as mum's cooking. So, it's really interesting to sort of see that dynamic and how um the result in that as an adult when it comes to a child's development as well yes now, i think yeah i think many parents sorry to interrupt you i oh, guess okay. i guess i guess many parents who are authoritarian what i've realized as well is that they do have very high self expectations of themselves uh perhaps this has you know um transpired uh, to them as a result of their childhood so for example like my mom she mm-hmm. is she is a very good cook, I think, because she has set a certain standard uh, for herself to meet. And I noticed that growing up where she would, you know, frequently go to the library or try various dishes um, to actually cook. And in terms of, you know, her household chores, they are done to the, they are extremely well done. She would be polishing the floors, um, you know, uh, and, and just... I even uh, washing the curtains like every month or every two months, which is a little unnecessary, but I guess it's because she does have a certain standard to meet. Yes. Yeah, no, I I think it's very similar in, in the household when it comes to that as well. Now, moving on to the next question, which is looking into the quality versus quantity. Now, is the quantity of parent-child interaction more important to the quality of it, or is there sort of a balance that is needed to maintain? Well, I guess in a perfect world, we will say both. Yeah, so both quantity and quality are important, uh, definitely. Yeah, because why? Um, quantity ensures that um, the children have ample opportunities to learn, uh, to bond with their parents, receive their guidance while quality ensures that these parent-child interactions are emotionally supportive, nurturing, and meaningful. So, of course, a balance of both quantity and quality is ideal uh, because this abundance um, and, you know, uh, good quality can then foster a stronger parent-child relationship and contributes to the child's well-being. Uh, But, of course, we know uh, that uh, in today's busy society, uh, maintaining both quantity and quality is tough. I don't think I know yep. of any parent, um, working parent, that um, has managed to do both quantity and quality. Yeah. It's it's really very difficult because, like I said, uh, in our busy society, uh, if you want to maintain both quantity and quality, probably you may need to actually work part-time or you require a lot of uh, uh, scheduling and mindful presence and prioritizing uh, the family time as well. Mm. No, I think it's extremely tough, like you said, especially when you, yeah, you want to maximize as much quality and quantity as you can get. But 
how do you find, how would you, in a normal society, how would you find that balance between work and also trying to manage your kids, especially when it comes to work is not always going to be as lenient as you think when it comes to the time given. And if you say that you're um, needing to spend time with family, there is a whole lot of other jobs that could be given to someone else, which sort of puts you in a position of choosing work over family in today's society as well. Yes, I guess what parents or what I've told parents to do um, is to just try their best to prioritize this family time. They could set aside um, dedicated blocks in their calendars. Mm -hmm. So for example, if they are working, because uh, in Singapore we start work at 8.30 or 9 a.m., um, whereas for, you know, our preschoolers or primary school elementary students, uh, they start school really early. They could go to school at either 6.30 a.m. or 7 a.m. So what we could do, yes, this is this is our society <laughs> these days in Singapore. Yeah, so so what we what um parents I what I have advised parents to do uh, uh, is to actually maybe just make sure that um you know they wake up. Of course, they wake up early to prepare their child. That's very important. Um, they shouldn't leave mm -hmm. it to because in Singapore we have lots of domestic helpers. You see. Yeah, so they should not leave it just to the domestic helpers. So the domestic helpers um are a great help. They can you know do the household chores for you. They can actually, you know, prepare the meals, but you have to be there uh, for your children as, you know, as many days as possible. Maybe just have a very quick breakfast of like 15 minutes um, and maybe mm -hmm. if possible, send your child to school, right? And then just, you know, um, yeah, in, in that um, journey to school, you could, you know, just check in with them on the, you know, daily happenings, any concerns that they may have for, you know, um, the school day, um, that day. Um, and then after that, you can, you know, prepare yourself uh, for work. Yeah. So I think it's really setting aside uh, dedicated blocks and um, also mm -hmm. to be fully engaged during those moments. Uh, other things that, you know, parents can do would be um, to uh, set aside meal times, um, bedtime opportunities for quality interactions and also mm -hmm. use technology very mindfully. Yeah, as much as possible, pu put away your laptops, your phones. Yes. Um, do not reply your no, emails. Think... Yes. Yeah. <laughs> no, especially when it comes to, like, I I love the whole idea of, like, you have a designated time, especially when it comes to, okay, we're going to know that Friday night is family movie night and sort of have that specific theme days or theme moments where it's like, okay, we're going to play board games on a Saturday or we're going to go out and do something together as a family on on a weekend or something, something small like that every day where it's like it's cost efficient. Everyone knows that it's there. It's kind of like a, a ritual as well that every family member knows it's coming up. So like, at least that's what I remember um, growing up. That's what was always done to ensure that all of us were together at a certain time. So um, I've always loved the whole idea of having that planned movie nights that used to do as a family as such a, um, as such a way to communicate with the rest of the other family members. Yes, I think that's great. So for me, um, my mom and dad uh, ensured that they are always home. Okay, so my mom uh, is a housewife, but... Um, she has she has a few part-time jobs here and there to actually uh you know uh 
supplement the family income. So for my mom and dad, they have often made sure that um, every day by 5.30pm, they are home uh, to actually eat uh, dinner together with me and my sister. So I think growing up as a family, we were very emotionally connected. Um, it was a very strong connection, which growing up, I, I thought this was normal until I started seeing, you know, many children and uh, parents sharing with me that, you know, they are often still at work while their, their children are back from school and having dinner. So there have been some, I think, families that, uh, you know, eat dinners, uh, eat their meals at separate times. Yeah, so that's a little bit sad to see. And um, I guess it's not rocket science. So if, if we look up at all the research on parent-child relationship, it goes down to as simple as just having meals or yeah, set aside, you know, the movie time with your child once a week. <laughs> and looking in the cultural differences, how do they influence the nature of positive interactions? Well, I think they are a very significant influence on the nature of uh, parent-child interaction. So why so is because uh, I think even for parenting styles, right, uh, cultural norms and values uh, shape these parenting styles, um, communication patterns and expectations for child uh, behaviour. So what is considered as a positive interaction in one culture may vary widely as well across uh, other cultures. So we have other things like family contacts, social economic status, family structure, community support, um, and uh, all this would actually play a crucial role in determining the availability and quality of parent-child interactions. So uh, with mm. regards to cultural differences, we do have to recognize and respect uh, these differences to actually promote effective communication and understanding between parents and children from diverse backgrounds. Yeah. Okay. And we know that every everyone has sort of challenges that they'll face. What's, what are some of the challenges that parents may face when trying to engage in a positive interaction with a child? Um, so far, there are two challenges that parents often uh, bring up to me. So first, um, it was already mentioned, so challenge of type. Uh, the second is more of um, the parents don't know how to communicate with their child or they don't know the activities to do. So sometimes I would uh, receive text messages from parents asking me, oh, it's the school holidays now. What should I do with my child? So most of them, uh, most of the Singaporean parents that I work with have uh, this idea that they should just bring their child overseas all the time to just spend time with yeah. them. And I'll be like, uh... That's a pretty expensive solution. Yeah. So um, just to share. So uh, what I've shared with parents is um, first, they can actually identify, uh, you know, non-essential activities within their child's schedule or their own schedule that can be reduced or, mm -hmm. in, or eliminated first uh, to give them more time. So for example, um, just to share the context that I'm in, uh, in Singapore, we do have, uh, you know, children that have lots of tuition. So we might have children that have maybe five to ten tu tuition classes a week. Alongside, they have gymnastics, soccer, okay. swimming. They have all these extracurriculars. So um, I will always tell, always advise parents which are the ones that you would like to focus on because um, 
after all, yes, while your child uh, has, you know, an array of uh, skills to uh, kind of foster, but in the end, they might be a master of none. So it's always important to identify which are the essential ones to keep. And then um, the rest of, you know, the tuition and extracurriculars may not be as important as parent-child relationship. So they should actually reduce those uh, non-essential activities. And then, like I have mentioned, so schedule mm-hmm. in the dedicated family time, right? And stick to stick to that. So it need not be, like you have mentioned, it, it, not, it may not be a daily thing. It can be just a Friday night uh, for a movie night. Yeah, and so this should be prioritized weekly, right? Maybe just three hours a week uh, in, in that sense. And um, if possible, um, I've seen my colleagues doing it uh, while they are working. So uh, you can use technology to stay connected. You can use like a WhatsApp uh, video call um, to stay connected during your, you know, busy periods uh, as working parents. So you can do short phone calls or messages. Yeah, but just make sure your short phone calls and messages are positive. Um, so I have, mm-hmm. have I've seen parents who called their, their children and asked them, uh, you know, uh, did they did they manage to get a full marks for spelling quizzes? Uh, did they manage to do this certain checklist that was set up to them? That may not be ideal. So it might be more of a check-in of your child's day, child's emotion. Yeah. And make everyday mm-hmm. routines such as meals or bedtimes, uh, quality interaction opportunities. And if possible, uh, involve your children in age-appropriate chores and tasks so that you share responsibilities uh, you know, among the family members and you can create bonding moments while accomplishing the necessary tasks. Yeah. Okay. Now, how does the nature of a parent and child interaction evolve as a child grows from infancy to adolescence? Um, it changes, yeah. So the nature of parent-child interactions evolves significantly. So I think while a child is young, in mm-hmm. infancy and in adult uh, early childhood, interactions are focused more on physical care, bonding, and the infant's basic needs. So as they become mm-hmm. preschoolers or toddlers, um, these interactions will expand to include uh, language development, exploration, and play. And during school age years, um, communication between parents and children deepens, and parents will actually parents will play a role in yeah. education and character development. Uh, whereas in adolescence, uh, this will be very much more complex. So um, it could be more complex conversations, uh, more frustration, more autonomy, and guidance in how to navigate uh, peer pressure and decision making. Um, so I think to foster that positive co- connection, parents need to adapt uh, to promote age-appropriate independence. So they need to be responsive to the changing emotional needs of their children as they grow older. They have to listen actively, foster op- open communication, and offer guidance that respects the increasing autonomy of their child. So flexibility, empathy, and the balance between guidance freedom will become increasingly important. Okay. So the different interactions are very based on like the age of the child. So you wouldn't, the same way you would treat an infant wouldn't be the same way that you would treat a teenager, for example. Okay. And 
we're talking about parents' emotional well-being, and I know that this is such a big thing when it comes to we talk about children a lot. We talk about children a lot on the channel. How does a parent's emotional well-being affect the quality of the interaction that they'll have with their own child? I think this is um, something that many many parents do struggle with. So definitely, their emotional well-being has mm. a profound impact on their parent-child relationship. So when parents are emotionally healthy um, and well, I think it's the same with all of us as individuals. Yeah, so they are better equipped to provide emotional support, patience, and positive engagement. So taking care of their own well-being uh, enables them to create this nurturing and enriching environment for their child. So this, mm. while this is important, uh, it's pretty difficult. Uh, many of the parents that I see, uh, I would say they are struggling to find or to actually manage their well-being. So at times, um, I do tell them that they have to prioritize their self-care, they have to seek support when needed, or they could manage their stress through, uh, through relaxation techniques, or some of them may need uh, therapy. Um, other ways to actually ensure this well-being would be to set boundaries, to balance their personal uh, work and parenting mm -hmm. responsibilities, and um, as much as it's suitable, uh, they can practice mindfulness then to be fully engaged and attuned to their child's needs. So it must be really important to have a routine or have a schedule in terms of balancing not only a parent's interaction with the child, but also a parent's interaction with themselves throughout the process of raising a child. Yes. It's, it's very Could, important. Cannot, yeah. I cannot imagine how busy that schedule is going to look when adding all these different factors in um, on a weekly basis. Yes, I think most of the parents I see um, when they are sending their children to appointments uh, or, or to just to mm -hmm. see me, they are hardly they are hardly regulated, <laughs> so as to speak. Meaning that um, they are fine, they look fine. However, they are often in a rush to you know send their child to the next activity. So I often have parents who you know are sending their kids to see me on a Saturday. But um, their children may have four to five other activities where they would have to drive their children all around Singapore for. So it's definitely not easy for them. Yeah. No, that's that must be. It's it's a hectic life being a parent. It definitely sounds it. <laughs> yes, um, I'm not a parent myself, and um, I would say uh, it's it's not that I don't want to be. Uh, I'm in the midst of you know trying. To plan for baby, but I when I when I actually see um, you know the parents that I help, uh, I do take a step back to think you know, am I even up to up for you know being a parent? It's really not easy. It's an entire full time job or even two full time jobs together. Yeah, no, I'm not a parent myself, but having so many people talking about parenting on the show, there is a huge. Um, huge need for me to question myself as well. It's like, am I up for the, am I up for the job of being a parent? Cause it sounds like, like you said, it sounds like a whole, it sounds like you're being everything to everyone. So it's, it's a crazy day, crazy day and age to 
be a parent. Now, we're looking at some of the advice and strategies that you can offer for a lot of busy parents, like exactly what we're talking about. Um, Other than the advice that you've mentioned earlier, what is the best piece of advice that you can offer for a parent that is trying to integrate positive interactions on as a daily routine, but they're rushing, they're busy? What are the simple strategies that you can sort of... help them implement into their daily lives? I think actually these are the strategies that, yes, I have repeated a few times, but it's so important because I do see, um, I do see a major progress in certain parents who have taken up, uh, who have taken up my advice. So it's just very simple strategies like eating meals with your children. And if it's not possible, because mm-hmm. I do have some parents that are working shift work, so they may not be home for lunches or dinners. So what you can do is probably just set aside a special time with you and your child and do what he or she likes, Pro- probably just 15 minutes a day if you can set aside time for it or maybe just three times a week. Yeah, so as much as possible, just be present for your child for this short period of time. Um, and I think it does wonders. So I have a, I have had a, a a teenager who mentioned to me that uh, you know she is feeling a little bit less upset with her mother because they are actually doing things that she likes rather than her doing activities that her mom has been asking her to do all these years. Wow, that's just such a big difference when you're sort of prioritizing um, the needs of. The activities that you want a child to do might with the activities that they're really interested in. I think the same goes for us. Um, I mean, if I imagine mm. uh, me having a teacher and the teacher is just trying to tell me to, you know, uh, do uh, my physics homework. Uh, as a child, I dislike physics and mathematics. Yeah, so um, if I were to think about same. teachers asking me to do, if my mom kept on forcing me to do like, oh, physics, you have to be really good at physics, you have to be good, really good at math, uh, I think I probably would have ran away from home. So very fortunately, <laughs> very fortunately, while my mom uh, is a little bit more strict than, uh, you know, the average parent out there, she has allowed me to uh, dabble in my interest in psychology. So I was very interested in psychology since I was 10 years old. Um, and so my mom mm. actually fostered that. Uh, she brought me to various uh, libraries in Singapore and we uh, borrowed lots of books on, you know, uh, disability, child development. And so therefore, I think my interests uh, and my uh, career development actually started when I was age 10. Yeah, so I just wanted to share that. Yeah, that is still possible because she she was a very busy parent, my dad as well. But I think every Sunday morning, she sets aside this routine. So I knew that at 10 a.m. to 12 noon, I would get to go out with them to uh, the various libraries in Singapore. Wow, that's such, that's such a great um, routine to sort of have in your, in your pocket, being like, I know this is exactly what's going to come up on Sunday. I know... Um, exactly what's going to happen which is I think it's so great to have that as a weekly thing and knowing that <laughs> that that's in the calendar that that's going to be something that's happening now we're going to be looking a little bit more into practice and habits part of the show which is honestly I think one of my favorite parts of the show 
um, looking into some of your own personal habits and your own personal practices. Now, what is a practice that you do to develop and enhance your own autonomy? Um, to be very honest, uh, it's it's not it's not because I'm in a podcast, but I listen to podcast daily. That is actually my practice. Uh, uh, in, in that sense, okay. Uh, why so? Is because I'm a psychologist. Uh, uh, by you know my career. Uh, and actually, there have been you know lots of um strategies like mindfulness, uh, and various methods of self care that um while I'm doing for parents, I'm doing for individuals or even children, uh, they may not be something that I need at that point in time because I'm practicing them daily. Um, so I guess um what I actually needed as a practice is more to uh it's more in a cognitive aspect where. Uh, I need to listen to various podcasts to get some idea, you know, on what I need uh, for autonomy building. Mm-hmm. No, that's that's so great. I think podcasts offer so much, um, not just advice, but so much um, inspiration as to not only the kind of person that you want to be, but just information as to how you can grow even further. Yes, I guess podcast really helps me because um, somehow listening to you know uh, the various podcasts. So I will actually just on I'll actually just open the YouTube uh, my YouTube channel and actually there are you know those recommended podcasts because I I listen to podcasts a lot and I guess YouTube knows my uh, my <laughs> patterns and my al- algorithm and so Spotify knows it as well. Yeah, so I will actually click you know on the recent podcast and there are many that actually teachers us. Uh, you know, uh, on how to achieve our personal goals, how to prioritize self-care, manage our time effectively. And this actually taught me how to, you know, make room for independent decision-making and growth. Mm-hmm. And what are the, we've spoken about some of the good things that sort of come about. Um, what are some of the challenges that you do find when listening to podcasts or even finding the time to listen to them? I would say there are no challenges. I watch podcasts all the time. So even before this, uh, while, <laughs> while preparing for this podcast, I was watching a podcast. So I guess you could call it meta podcasting. Yep. So I was, uh, I, yeah, I will watch podcasts whenever I'm tired, when I'm bored, when I'm uninspired, when I need a break, even on public transport and anywhere and everywhere. I guess there are no challenges. Perhaps if I have to squeeze out one, it would be... If my brain, if my brain is probably too engaged, right, and I'm not able to focus on a podcast, uh, perhaps then it would not be beneficial. Because while listening to a podcast, uh, I don't find it. I don't find that I need to have this cognitive capacity to actually reflect on um, the experiences and examples that um, the podcasters are sharing. Mm-hmm. No, I I agree with that. I think. There are some podcasts that I listen to to take notes and to have to be completely focused on the show. And then there's some that I that you can listen to while just doing every everyday things or while working. I feel like there's there's so many podcasts out there that has a little bit of everything for at any moment that you're listening to them, any moment you're needing them. So there's a whole variety that can come out. Um, but some like like I said earlier, I really need to sit down and just really listen to. Yeah, I guess the two podcasts that I was telling you about earlier, I think the 
Diary of the CEO and On Purpose with Jay Shetty. Those two yep. needs me to be entirely focused on them. It's one thing very long. I think it's about an hour or so. Yeah, and the second thing would be, yeah, there's lots of concepts and like reflections that I really just need to, you know, just sit there and focus on it. So I think when I'm on the go and when my brain is fried, I actually uh, don't, I don't listen to podcasts. Uh, yeah, especially when I have no co- co- cognitive capacity. Instead, I actually unwind. I listen to K-pop because it is very effectively brainless, but it helps me to rewind back to my yeah original state. Yeah, no, I, I can definitely agree with you there. Um, I think On Purpose is such a great, such a great recommendation. And I, I love listening to it whenever I get the chance. And public transport is probably one of my favorite places to listen to it because I don't have to listen to anyone else around me, which is so great. Now we move on to the open mic part of the show, which is the final part of the show. Um, It gives you a chance to talk to the audience directly about anything that you're passionate about. And I think we sorted on a topic earlier um, before we started filming, which is talking a little bit more about early intervention and a little bit more um, deeply, deeper into what early intervention actually is. So I'll give you the next minute or so to be able to talk with the audience and also share some of your understanding as to what early intervention is. Okay, so uh, early intervention is usually for very young children. So it could be um, in Singapore, it's for one years old all the way to seven years old. So these are actually children who are identified to have uh, some sort of developmental delays. It can range from cognitive disabilities um, to autism, um, to ADHD, or even speech and language delays. So um, early intervention is extremely crucial uh, because it can, research has shown that it can significantly improve outcomes for individuals facing developmental education or health challenges. Uh, So what we want to do is to really identify and address all these issues right at the very early stages, hopefully by one to two years of age, um, so that we can work on a child's cognitive, emotional, physical development, um, speech, behavioral difficulties, and tailor the interventions to specific needs of the individuals. So for early intervention programs, we have run it for a whole range of um, uh, needs. Um, And this is really because of when a child is this young, when they're about one years old, this is when their brains and their bodies are more adaptable, um, especially to the research-based interventions that we're running, such as positive behavior support, um, educational therapy, occupational therapy, physiotherapy as well. So this leads to more effective and less costly interventions in the long run. So studies have shown that um, if a child with needs uh, starts early intervention when they are really young, from one to three years of age. Uh, this will actually prevent potential lifelong challenges and it enhances uh, their overall quality of life. So early intervention not only benefits the individual, but it also contributes to the well-being of their families and the society as a whole because it reduces the long-term healthcare educational costs and then it fosters greater dependence and self-sufficiency 
so that these children can grow up uh, into an independent um, and meaningful uh, adults uh, where they can actually, you know, hold down jobs and take care of themselves independent. Mm-hmm. So it's it's aimed at children who are after, reach the ages after one years old. Yes, I guess um, there has there has been children who, you know, are only a few months old and they are attending early intervention programs in Singapore. So these are children uh, with Down syndrome that has been identified since birth. So as much as possible, okay. if there are any needs identified from birth, like uh, Down syndrome or cerebral palsy, uh, we could, you know, have them into an early intervention program as soon as possible. However, for other needs such as speech and language delay, autism, this may take time because um, it's not possible to detect when a child is only one years old. So perhaps those that are about two to three years old um, might uh, start to go into this early intervention programs uh, for them to, you know, seek help to uh, kind of close up the social and uh, developmental gaps that they have. Mm-hmm. Well, that sounds, it sounds like it's doing a lot of help in terms of the family relationship as well, not just between a parent and a child, but other family members being involved and also learning a whole lot about the the child before, um, before they reach certain ages and getting to know them a little bit more. Um, if there is any way that People want to find out a little bit more about what early intervention is. Do you have any resources that would be great for a deeper understanding as to how that is beneficial for a lot of parents? I think in Australia, I, I sorry, I can't quite, quite remember the um, research uh, study. Okay. Um, I can't remember the name of the research study, but I think in Australia, there should be a parenting research center I guess the name is Parenting Research Centre. It's in Victoria, Australia. Uh, and their okay. website has um, very substantial um, evidence for early intervention. And in the website, they have, you know, programs such as, I think, signposts for build- building better behaviour uh, to get parents to learn mm-hmm. how to help their children with uh, behavioural difficulties or learning challenges. Well, that's great. I'll definitely have that as a resource down in the show notes below for easy access for a lot of our audience, because I think that's something that we don't hear a lot about. And it's not something that we see as a resource or we see as a way into parenthood, especially if you're on your first, if you have your first child, it's not something that you really see as a, um, as a helpful tool that you can have. So thank you so much, Ulysses, for joining me on the show today and for talking about not only early intervention, but also how important a positive parent and child interaction is, especially in the busy day-to-day life that we have today. Um, If there is a way audience members would like to get in contact with you to discuss this a little bit more or even ask questions that I know that I have missed, is there a contact information that I'm able to share with the audience today? Yes, uh, they can contact me on my LinkedIn or uh, they can contact me via my clinic uh, website address or the Instagram Instagram handle. Okay, perfect. I'll have those down um, below as well for easy access for everyone. 
So yeah, thank you so much, Ulysses, for coming on the show today. It's been so good talking about this and I can't wait to talk about early intervention and look into it a little bit more uh, on my end as well. Yes, thank you so much. Thank you. Well, thanks everyone for watching and I'll see you all in the next episode. You've been listening to Raising Parents, the Parenting Science Insights podcast, produced by the Parenting Science Labs, a division of LMSL, the Life Management Science Labs. More episodes are available from 10 life management perspectives and can be found by searching LMSL on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and other podcasting apps available on your devices. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating our show, sharing it, and subscribing to our channel as it helps other people find it so that we can grow and bring you more quality resources. More of our work can be found on our website at pa.lmsl.net where you can join our movement. I'm Dina Sargent. Thanks for tuning in.